0: Hello everybody. Welcome to the 18th installment of the Phenotypic speaker series. We're very excited to have you guys joining us now and tuning in. I'm your host Kira Deneen. My pronouns are she and her. We are diving into the future of hereditary cancer genetic counseling today. I'm very excited to be exploring these topics. I'm a prenatal genetic counselor. So I have a lot of questions to see, especially what has changed recently in cancer genetic counseling and what is gonna be changing in the future of what we're predicting. Um, So I'm joined by hereditary genetic experts here. Um, So we're gonna start by doing, I'm gonna interview our panelists um, and then we're gonna answer your questions. So as you think of questions, as you're, you know, everybody's signing in here, as you think of questions, feel free to pop those into the Q and A box. And Sanjay, we have a question here. Sanjay is our behind the scenes. Um, We have a question if we can enable closed captioning. Um, So I'm gonna pitch that to you to see if we're able to do that. Um, Thank you so much for your question, Kelsey. Um, So yes, definitely submit those questions throughout our session today. Phenotips is the sponsor of this series. Phenotips provides a complete solution for medical genetics, They offer software and services that ease genetic professionals workflow. They offer tools like pedigree builders, human phenotype, oncology capture, and diagnostic insights. And we've all experienced having a hard time with electronic health records that are not built for genetics. Whereas Phenotips, that's exactly what it's built for. Um, so Phenotips really fills in the gap by providing a unified and seamless genetics workflow. And in light of the pandemic, this is how the Phenotips speaker series started. Um, just uh, Phenotips decided to sponsor this and have these international conversations so that we can all you know, keep abreast on all the changes in genetics. Um, so as I said, I'm your host, Kira Deneen. I also am the host of DNA today, which is a genetics podcast. We have won the people's choice podcast Award for the last two years in the science and medicine category. So it was very exciting. In the last decade, we've produced over 175 episodes, very similar to today's conversation. We've actually had a couple Phenotips installments on DNA Today as a crossover. Um, so if you enjoy this conversation, definitely check out the podcast. Um, but enough about me. I'd love to hear from our panelists. Jill, you want to start us out?
1: Sure. Uh, well, thank you so much for inviting me here today. My name is Jill Stauffer, and my pronouns are she, her. Uh, I am currently the Associate Director of Genetic Counseling at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston.
2: Great. And Jessica, you want to chime in? Yes. My name is Jessica Corridor. You guys can call me Jessie. Um, I am a Senior Genetic Counselor at um, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. I specialize in breast and pediatric cancer genetics, and my pronouns are she, her.
3: And Emily, finish us off. Yep, my name is Emily Nazar. My pronouns are also she/her, and I am a lead for the cancer genetics service team at Genome Medical, which is a telehealth um, company. And so we um, aim to, you know, increase access through telehealth services for genetics services in particular.
0: Fantastic. Well, I'm very excited to have. All three of you here, um, I have a lot of questions to get through, but again, audience members, if you have questions as we're chatting, please put those in the Q and a box. Cause I really want to prioritize having your questions answered as well as my own. Um, so I want to start out with just some general questions before we get into specifics, just so that we're all on the same page. If there are people joining us that do not work in the cancer genetics area. Um, so figured we could start by just explaining the advantage of knowing, a cancer is hereditary versus sporadic. So if there's a family component to this in terms of inheriting this. Emily, yeah, go ahead.
3: Oh, I think you're still on mute, Emily. Thank you, (laughs) Sarah. So there are a few potential benefits of knowing if a cancer is hereditary or not. Um, There could be implications for the patient themselves, sometimes knowing whether or not a cancer is hereditary can affect the treatment options that might be recommended for a patient. Um, It also lets the patient know if they have a risk of Future just entirely separate cancers down the line. You know, once they get through their treatment for the current cancer, do they need to be followed more closely to look out for anything else? So it helps inform that follow up for them. And then it also has huge implications for their family because, of course, you know, the goal is ideally we would, you know, be able to offer testing to their relatives as well so that we know who else is at risk hopefully before more cancers happen so that we're either able to prevent them in the relatives um, or catch them as early as possible when treatments can be a little bit easier.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, highlighting that um, looking at other family members to potentially be at risk and future cancers that we should be thinking about. Um, When we're looking at family health history, this is something that all genetic counselors are doing in some capacity. Um, and a lot of times we're looking, you know, as a prenatal genetic counselor, I'm still documenting all of the cancer in the family that the patient is sharing uh, for them and their partner. What are some of the red flags in a family health history for hereditary cancer versus sporadic? Um, when healthcare providers are looking at this, or if we do have people listening that they're like, well, there is cancer in my family. Could this be hereditary cancer? Jesse, go ahead. So, some of the things we're looking for
2: in a family is maybe an earlier age of diagnosis than what we typically expect to see. So, if somebody's diagnosed with cancer, for example, let's take breast cancer. If they're diagnosed in their 30s with breast cancer, that's more concerning to me for a possible hereditary factor in comparison to somebody that might be diagnosed in their 70s with it. Um, In addition, I always tell my my families that I meet with that genetics is really looking for patterns in a family. So what I'm looking for is, are there either the same type of cancer running through multiple generations, or are there related cancers that could be genetically linked together, even if they're not the same exact type of cancer? Um, And then certain cancers have a higher um, genetic load to them or have a higher likelihood of being hereditary. So I always keep my eyes out for those types of cancers that may have, have that higher genetic component to it.
0: Yeah, very well said, Jesse, and that we really want to be looking for patterns, I think is a big part. And, and also as you were saying that some cancers have a higher like genetic load. I like the way you phrase that. Cause I'm always looking for like, how do I explain this to patients? Um, you know, something that I think of recently, um, I've had a couple of patients talk about that there's ovarian cancer in the family. To me, I'm like, okay, that's a red flag. Cause that's a more rare cancer. We don't see that as often as breast cancer. Um, so certainly if that's paired with breast prostate cancer,
1: Jill chime in. Yeah, so uh, one of the things that I think is fascinating, and as we sort of look toward the future uh, with what's going to happen with genetic testing and, and cancer, is uh, you know we are taught as genetic counselors to look for patterns, and that will continue to be important. That's never going to be you know an unimportant activity, but increasingly we're testing people based on their diagnosis alone. And so just you know, sort of continuing this thought train about you know the fact that certain cancers have a higher genetic load. Um, and one of the things that we're doing at, at Dana-Farber and other centers are doing as well is we're offering genetic testing to people with certain diagnosis, regardless of the family history. So every pancreatic cancer patient is a candidate for genetic testing. Every patient with ovarian cancer, it doesn't matter what your family history is. There's up to a 20% chance we're going to find something. And every patient with um, metastatic prostate cancer. So, so the, you know, there's just these increasing categories and also an uh, increasing number of publications coming out showing that we don't get the clues that we need so many times by uh, taking a family history. So again, not that the family history is unimportant because sometimes it's screaming at you, you know, or or, or even whispering at you, you know, suggesting that something might be indicated. But I think as we think toward the future, because uh, just diagnosis-based testing is going to expand, it's one of our workforce issues. How are we going to get genetic services to all of these folks who could use it for all the reasons that you know we're so nicely you know laid out at the beginning of this discussion?
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a huge area that the field has been to me more focused on the past couple years, um, increasing access. Um, there is a um, Bill that we're trying an act that we're trying to pass access to genetic counseling services, HR 2144. Um, And you know, I'm seeing more of this recently. The Reducing Hereditary Cancer Act was introduced into the US Senate with a parallel bill, HR 4110 in the House of Representatives. Um, So, what is do you anybody familiar with what the goal of this act is? I was doing a little bit of research before um, and saw that we're we're trying we're aiming to ensure that Medicare beneficiaries have access to the guideline recommended genetic counseling. Jesse, chime in, yeah.
2: Yeah. So my understanding and a struggle we have with some of our patients is that currently um, Medicare and Medicaid services um, only they don't cover the preventative aspects of of healthcare. So in the genetics realm, if somebody does not have a cancer diagnosis, um, their genetic testing would not be covered by Medicare and Medicaid. And on top of that, if somebody does have a gene, if we can get them testing, because a lot of testing labs are helping these patients get testing for lower costs, if they test positive, that, that doesn't mean that Medicare or Medicaid will pay for those, those follow up screenings and additional recommendations that we may have. Um, and, and we see a lot of patients that are on Medicare and Medicaid. And so I think this is a, an issue that has um, really come up for our patients that even if I can get them the testing that they, they might need, what can we do after that to make healthcare affordable for these patients? So, um, I think those movements are, are really going to help these patients get access to that. Um, bringing back what Emily said earlier, so much of the purpose of doing genetic testing is to help with prevention of future cancers, and if patients don't have access to that, it puts us in a difficult situation of giving them information that then they they don't have a, a lot. Of follow up that they're able to do from a financial perspective.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I know that there's been um, a lot of genetic counselors that have been involved in helping to get more support for these acts and bills, so that we can see them be passed. Um, so it seems like the last couple of years, yeah, there's been there's been a lot of um, support for those, and and you know it's really really building up. So hopefully we're seeing that these pass, so that this can be in place. Um, and you know we're taking some of the hurdles to get to genetic counselors
1: and also to get the testing as you were saying Jesse go ahead Joe yeah and so it's you know in again in line with what's going on it's critical that genetic counselors be more folded into the healthcare community and that we are not cms providers we are not recognized by medicare as providers in the healthcare system and it's just mind boggling that this is still where we're at considering how valuable we are to the care of these patients. And increasingly, we are just part and parcel of oncology cancer care. So it is just critical that this bill get passed, that we are considered as CMS uh, providers, because once we're covered, we are providers for Medicare, typically the other private insurers follow along. And again, getting back to work Force, where it's hard to meet the demand for the number of people who are great candidates for genetic testing because it could directly influence their care. Um, it just doesn't make sense that so many uh, institutions have to figure out how to cover the genetic counselors because the billing has to be, let's just say, creative, <laughs> you know, when we don't have the ability sometimes to charge our own professional fees. You know, everyone kind of sorts it out. But this is really a key piece of legislation, you know. In addition to covering, of course, the the care for those who have hereditary risk, making genetic counselors part of the medical system in this country is just imperative. And I thought it
0: was so interesting that it, um, for the, the Access to Genetic Counselors Act, it actually decreases costs because seeing a genetic counselor consult is less than seeing a physician. So a lot of, you know, acts and bills that are trying to be passed. It's like, okay, it's going to cost money. We're actually saving money, which I think is important. And we're, we're specialized in what we do. Um, So it just, to me, it's common sense, right? I think for all of us that are in the field, but it's just explaining that to, um, you know, representatives and everything. And I know, um, I think it was last year through NSGC. Like, you know, I was one of many genetic counselors that signed up to meet with representatives, explain like, this is my job. This is where I work in my state, um, and explaining to them, this is why it's important that we pass this. So definitely recommend checking out because I've seen, I think it's popping back up again, um, that I've seen some emails go out. Um, so definitely check in on that.
1: Yeah. There's more co-sponsors of the bill and you know, we're, we're forever hopeful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And
0: Jill, you brought up a point of looking at who the best person in the family is to test for um, doing the genetic testing. If there is a strong family history of cancer in the family, how do we we identify who is the best person to
1: test? Can you uh, speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so ideally, if you're trying to figure out what is the source of possible hereditary risk in the family, you want to try to test the person who may have that hereditary risk, who's who's most likely to have it first. And so that would be the individual with the representative cancer. And if you can pin down what this is, if you can find a gene alteration, then you can use that to test everyone else in the family very informatively. Um, But what often happens with lots of us is the people who come to seek our advice are those who've never had a cancer diagnosis. They wanna know what their risk is. um, And it's hard to sometimes address with the person who's already had cancer. Why is this important? You know, people say, oh, I already have cancer. Why do I need to know my risk? It's, this is, you know, just just let my daughter have it or just let my son have it. (laughs) And so um, it's really key that we can figure out is the genetic risk in this family detectable? Because it's not always detectable. Sometimes we can see a very suspicious pattern in the family and say to ourselves, gosh, there's really something going on here. Um, And our genetic test turns up nothing. And then we default to family history. And so if we only tested the unaffected cancer-free person and it was negative, it's possible we're barking up the wrong tree. We're not even testing the right thing. And so The only way to, I say, let someone off the hook of being at increased risk in the setting of a strong family history is if we know what this is, we know what it is, and if we know what it is, and you don't have that, then your risk goes back to the average person's risk. But if we don't know what the source of risk is, if it hasn't been identified in someone in the family, then... Uh, it's not what we call a true negative result; it's an uninformative negative result, and they may still be uh, told that increased screening is is going to be indicated. So, when possible, we start with the person who's had a cancer diagnosis. But that's not to say that we'll decline testing, you know, the cancer-free individual, because sometimes, practically speaking, there's just no other way around it. And if you find something in the unaffected person, well, we've also solved you know, the puzzle that way. It's more when the testing is negative, that, um, testing the affected person first is so helpful.
0: Yeah. Because if the affected person, if we find they have a, a genetic change, a mutation, then we can say, all right, we're testing other individuals, like their offspring, their siblings for that. Um, but if we don't find anything, then it's like, all right, we don't know what we're looking for now. And, and I, I also explain that, that to patients that, you know, if, if I test you and not your mom, that's had the cancer, then what if she didn't pass that on to you? We don't know about for your siblings. Um, so I think that that's, you know, really well explained that, you know, the reason why we need to do this now on the flip side, how can genetic testing help tailor treatment? As we've mentioned, this is important. Sometimes it can help tailor treatment when a person has been diagnosed with cancer, but how does that actually work? Like what type of treatments are going to be different depending on genetic testing results? Go ahead, Emily.
3: Yeah, so there are um, becoming really more and more kind of targeted treatments that are available for people based on. genetic profile sometimes that's their kind of genes that they were born which is kind of what we're talking about this hereditary cancer genetic testing there's also a lot of genetic testing that's getting done increasingly on cancers themselves on the actual tumors and the idea behind this is that you could then potentially there are either medicines that are already fda approved to target certain genetic mutations um, and then there are also more and more clinical trials becoming available for these patients too, dependent on their genetic testing results in their germline, their hereditary stuff they were born with, or if they have an alteration that's just present in their cancer, people can kind of qualify both ways. So this is sort of another thing that's kind of landing on the plates of genetic counselors more and more is patients who have had some sort of um, genetic alteration variant mutation identified in their tumor And um, they are now wondering, like, is this just in my cancer or is this in the rest of me too? Is this something I was born with that I could have passed on to my kids? And so we're having some more of those conversations with patients too now um, to kind of guide those next steps to figure it out. Um, But then the the treatment decisions, of course, are going to be made with their oncologist, but the oncologists are often taking genetic testing results into account as they sort of personalize that treatment.
0: And how does uh, Jesse chime in here? Yeah, uh, I just
2: also wanted to add um, that the, the national guidelines for genetic testing have been expanding really rapidly, especially as it relates to patients that might benefit from treatment changes. So um, I've noticed this in the breast realm recently with um, people qualifying for treatments called PARP inhibitors. Um, to help treat a breast cancer. Um, And so we have noticed a real uptick in patients needing testing more rapidly for upfront treatment decisions. We used to think of genetic testing as being able to be done at any point during their, their treatment or before surgery was the biggest kind of urgency. But now our oncologists are changing treatment decisions based on genetic testing results Um, And so it's been a challenge to figure out how we can get a larger number of patients tested more readily and and we're kind of changing the way we're ordering testing and the way genetic services are being provided. So that way we can get more patients access to testing earlier. Um, And on the pediatric side, we've also been seeing um, a lot of providers wanting test results to help guide therapies there, and particularly related to even radiation exposure, uh, making sure if there's a gene present that might put them at a higher risk of secondary cancers. If they get radiation, um, we're needing to get testing done before that starts. So I've seen a shift recently um, to needing testing more rapidly than what we used to need. And so that's really just been a challenge to figure out, even at a big institution where we have lots of genetic counselors, how can we get all these patients seen as quickly as possible and get their testing back for those treatments?
0: And the turnaround time, I imagine, is even more important. Like if someone's coming in because they have a family history and there's nothing pressing with you know surgeries that are being lined up, treatment that needs to be figured out, you know, really in those weeks days. Um, but yeah, the turnaround testing, I remember when I was in a cancer clinic as a student a couple of years ago, you know, two, three weeks, is that similar to what we're seeing in terms of gene panels?
1: Yeah. So now we can get what we call stat panels. And so typically what we do is, you know, we pull out certain genes to look at first that are really the critical ones that are most likely to affect some sort of either surgical decision-making or treatment decision and we get that result uh, in approximately seven to 10 days.
0: Wow, that's that's much better (laughs) than waiting like two, three weeks. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And prior to someone being diagnosed with cancer, if we're kind of going back in the timeline, how can genetic testing provide information for early detection and preventative strategies? So kind of going more back to if there is a family history or you know, someone is looking to see, okay, do I have an increased risk of certain cancers? What are some of the options in terms of, early detection and preventative strategies. Is insurance coverage, is is that part of this conversation? Whereas if you have a genetic mutation, that insurance is more likely to cover some of this testing? Emily, I'd love to hear from you.
3: Yeah, so um, there are lots of different examples. Of course, it's it's pretty gene-specific. So if a we'll use, um let's use Lynch syndrome as an example. This is um, the most common inherited cause of colon cancer, and it also raises a person's risk for other cancer types. Um, for someone who is found to have that, let's say somebody has diagnosed with Lynch syndrome and they've never had a cancer before, um, Some of the biggest changes for them would be things like You know, now the average person doesn't start their colonoscopy screening until they're 45 or 50, and they maybe go every 10 years if their colonoscopies are normal. Um, Somebody who has Lynch syndrome would start their colonoscopies typically as early as 20 to 25 years old, and they might be coming as often as every year, um, depending on how those colonoscopies are going. So um, that is a huge difference, right? The otherwise, if they didn't know about that, they may have not gotten their first colonoscopy until they turned 45. And that gives a lot more time for one of those little polyps to go from precancerous to cancerous. Whereas if we've got them coming in often, the goal is to just remove all of those with the colonoscopy so that they never get a chance to, I usually tell patients like it doesn't get a chance to go bad. Um, so that's kind of one example of how can it be used? How can it be very helpful? Um, as far as the insurance piece goes, um, I because we have these national comprehensive cancer network guidelines to point to, uh, most insurers look to those and, you know, kind of follow those as well. So oftentimes there is insurance coverage for those preventative services I would say most of the time with private insurers that is well covered um, there are other examples of things people can do preventatively anything from other types of increased screening you know more frequent breast screening at an earlier age to even things like preventative surgeries you know some people might opt to have a you know preventative mastectomy instead of extra breast cancer screening if they know they have a very high chance to develop breast cancer. And that's when it becomes more of a personalized, you know, decision-making process and that the patient would think through and would often meet with different specialists as they're kind of deciding what feels right to them. Um, But insurance coverage is often there for that as well. So it's never, I would never say it's like 100% always there, but in my experience, most insurers will cover that if there is a genetic mutation that says, this person's at increased risk, and sometimes, sometimes based on family history too. Um, but certainly, if you have a positive genetic testing result and you have these guidelines that you can point to that say this is recommended, I think that definitely helps to make a stronger argument.
0: Yeah, certainly one reason to pursue genetic testing because otherwise, if you're deciding to do the screenings without like that medical reason behind it, like that's documented, I would imagine that would be quite expensive um, because even for breast cancer, um, for screening, you're doing, um, you know, the, um, mammograms, but then also breast MRI, like every six months you flip-flop between them, if I'm getting that right. Um, so, you know, that, that adds up every six months. It's like, by the time you've done one, you're already scheduling the next. Um, so I think that that's important to be looking at. And Emily, you mentioned the NCCN guidelines. Have you found that, you know, I think maybe Jesse mentioned earlier that these have changed over the years. Obviously, that we're trying to pick up more people that are at risk for developing cancer. Um, are they identifying most people with hereditary cancer syndromes? Like, do we wish that they would cover more, cover less? Like, like what do we want to see change? Jill, you're having a reaction to this. Tell me what you're thinking.
1: <laughs> so you know, there, there's a um, a wonderful position at. Uh, Beth Israel Deaconess uh, named Nadine Tang, and she wrote an editorial about how you know honestly at this point you know even if we just consider breast cancer patients it would be easier to say who's not a candidate than to look at the NCCN guidelines which are I mean you know you need to pull out your extra reading glasses to to get through all of it and you know while you know maybe those of us in in genetics who've been attracted to this field, kind of, you know, like, all right, will we do that? It's, it's not something that a lot of people have the time or the patience to sort through. They're just, and, and you know, what this is reflecting is that more and more people are candidates for this sort of genetic testing, that, and they don't want to leave people out of the loop. But it's getting to the point where, again, there's been publication after publication showing that these guidelines don't identify people with clinically actionable mutations. And the cost of genetic testing has come down tremendously. And this is something that there's still, you know, misinformation out there that it's going to be thousands and thousands of dollars. It's not. Most uh, can access genetic testing of the type we order, uh, even in the absence of insurance coverage for $250. And then if we have low income patients, they will meet guidelines that the labs have, very generous income guidelines. They will pay nothing or they'll pay very little. So mostly we can get people access if they want to because of all of these things. So you know, as we think toward the future, um, I think that all cancer patients are gonna be offered genetic testing at some point. It's gonna be part of their uh, pathology Uh, you want to know tumor size, you want to know, you know, other features of their cancer in designing treatment. And this is going to be part and parcel of oncology care. It's just going to be all comers. And then maybe for those who are unaffected, who are cancer free, uh, there, you know, there may still be some guidelines, uh, because I don't know that we're going to immediately go to population screening. But again, thinking toward the future, I think eventually we're going to get there too. Uh, as the um, advances in genetic medicine reach into so many different disciplines, and we know that if you have a heads up about someone's risks for a variety of medical conditions, you can tailor and stratify care over their lifetime. And so there are a number of initiatives out there right now looking at things like like baby seek, like you know testing babies, um, and you know other other studies that are. Doing kind of this this population approach to see what is the value of getting this information. And my personal prediction is one day, you know, maybe when we're in our early twenties, we're going to have our genome sequenced at our primary care physician's um, office, and then we'll be sort of farmed out to the appropriate people for the right care. And it works in both directions. You know, maybe some people need more, but maybe some people need less. And it doesn't have to be a crystal ball of accuracy. It can lead to stratification that makes more sense than, you know, just the same approach for everyone in the population.
0: Yeah, I definitely heard more talk of that, of switching to population-based testing and not just, oh, you've met these guidelines, now do the testing. As you said, a lot of people will meet the guidelines there's not necessarily that correlation between you met the guidelines and we found a hereditary cancer mutation um so i think that's interesting and i mean as you said it's not thousands of dollars like a lot of people are thinking it's 250 you know it's usually around there or insurance is covering it, or if, you know, their income is at a certain point, then they're getting the financial aid from the lab. So it's like, why, why
1: aren't we offering it to more people when you, when you put it all out that way, you know? Well, and, you know, and it's not to ignore the, you know, some of the complications of genetic information and that we're still learning a lot. We, you know, we, we are fans of some of the larger panel tests and we know that sometimes some People come toward genetic testing seeking clarity, and they walk away with uncertainty because you know we, we we're describing an alteration in a gene for which our understanding is evolving. Uh, there are still people who will look it in the eye and say, "I understand what you're telling me that this could help guide my care. I don't want to know," and we need to respect those decisions. Um, and so, you know, we we really need to, I think, offer right? We need to offer, we need to make it accessible. And we need to figure out ways how to provide a choice. Um, And we need to figure out ways how to provide the proper follow-up once something is found. And, you know, we've been talking about workforce, you know, the whole time. And and it's one thing to come up with some very streamlined way to test people, but then there's a finding and now what? (laughs) And that's, that's why we need more genetic counselors. That's why we need this bill passed. So we are part of the medical system, better reimbursement. There needs to be more of us. We need to just be integrated into medical care throughout.
0: Completely agree. Completely agree. Jesse, what do you have to say? Yeah,
2: I definitely agree that that's the direction that genetic testing in um, oncology care is going. and. Um, I think the biggest thing that gives me some caution that I think the genetics community needs to plan for is there's not going to be enough genetic counselors to help patients make these decisions about whether they want genetic testing and to what degree they want that. And so I think we're going to need as a genetics community to, to help. Healthcare providers understand the types of conversations that need to be had around this. Because I see a lot of women coming into my clinics who didn't even know their doctor was ordering genetic testing for them at their OBGYN appointments, and they found something they were not expecting to find. And, you know, we are great um, at being able to help them navigate that result and helping them understand it but I do also work with a population of young people in the pediatric realm, as well as I work in a young adult and adolescent clinic. And um, I get a a perspective from those um, individuals that is a lot different from my adult population, um, where a lot of my adult patients are interested in testing and they are ready to move forward with it. And there's always scenarios where patients decline testing but in my young adult population, we have a lot deeper conversations about whether this is information they're ready to have, whether this is information they, they want right now in the future or ever want to have. Um, and so I think it's gonna be important that providers are trained to have some of these conversations or in those situations where maybe a patient isn't sure to refer And I just get somewhat hesitant about genetic testing being offered at a population level to patients that don't know what they're getting themselves into and don't know what those results could mean for them. Um, Particularly too, it can impact your ability to get things like life insurance or disability insurance. And I just know from my experience, my young patients don't really have a a background knowledge of, of those concepts to even make decisions related to that without some conversation with myself. So that's one thing we're thinking about in our clinics is how to make sure that we're still offering test counseling to those that would benefit most from pretest counseling, while also thinking about the number of patients and the number of people that could benefit from genetic testing. Currently, the, the number of cancer genetic counselors cannot offer pretest counseling at a population level. So whether that needs to be more, tr- more genetic counselors or more training of providers to be able to offer those conversations, I think that's really where I see some hesitancy. I do like to be in control of things. So part of me needs to relinquish some control, but I do, um, from my patient population, I do get somewhat anxious about the number of patients that might be offered, um, testing without fully knowing what that means for them or fully being ready for that information.
0: Yeah. I mean, you guys have highlighted so much of, what we need patients to be processing with someone because it's not just oh yes medically they should have the test like a lot of other different things there's so much decision making that goes around this and some things as you said jesse that young people may not be thinking about life insurance if they're you know a young adult um And another area that I was curious about in terms of the decision-making is if a patient decides they've had these conversations with y'all and have decided, okay, I do wanna do the genetic testing. At that point, are you basically recommending, okay, we should do this panel? Or are you going into different panel options for them? How detailed do you get? Does it depend on the patient? Like, I don't know if this really depends on you as a provider too, of what your preference is. Um, Does anyone want to share like what you do? Yeah,
3: Emily. Yeah, I can speak to that a little bit. And I don't want to speak for everyone, but I've, I've worked in a few different clinics um, over the course of my career. Sorry for the background noise. Sorry. Um, And I find that at each clinic, there tends to be, there tends to be some sort of consensus among the providers of what kind of their go-to is, whether that be, Um, a specific lab or a specific panel that kind of tends to be the baseline of like, okay, we're gonna offer all of our patients this. However, there's absolutely always room to tailor that. And we do have discussions with patients, maybe someone is a little more hesitant and they wanna have a smaller gene panel that really is only looking at breast cancer genes, for example, if that's what's in their family. Um, I find just in my experience, most patients are interested in kind of going bigger this idea of like, well, yeah, while you're at it, let's just look and make sure that there's not anything else. And sometimes patients even ask me, Hey, can you check let's check for stuff other than cancer while you're at it? And I say like, well, no, like we're going to stick to this, but you know, I can refer you to one of my colleagues want to explore something else. Absolutely. But And maybe that's what the patient population I see that tends to be very information seeking. Um, But in general, yes, like our group has a go-to that's sort of our baseline and we can either go up or down from there based on our conversation with the patient. But it does, our baseline is sort of one of these multi-gene hits on several different cancer types. It's not the biggest, um, but it's pretty comprehensive.
0: And obviously the gene panels can range from just doing one gene to many genes. What what is that range in terms of the end of it? Like what's the max panel nowadays?
1: I mean, sometimes the panels are very large, um, especially if you're talking about, you know, looking at the tumor, so, you know, we're looking at 400 genes or Uh, we see a lot of heme patients in our uh, program. And so the heme panels tend to be very large, we're combining the sort of the heme with the solid tumor panels. So we we have ordered, you know, gigantic panels. But again, I I completely agree, this has to be done um, with a discussion with the patient, and it has to be in their zone of comfort. Uh, So, you know, I think a lot of us probably are somewhere between, you know, 30 something genes and 80 something genes, Okay, that's probably the, you know, the most common selection somewhere in there. And then in certain instances, you might, you know, dial it up and in certain instances to be responsive, you're gonna dial it way down. Uh, And and sometimes these conversations happen even in the setting of a known uh, pathogenic variant in the family We think about, do we just look for the pathogenic variant that's known or do we open it up and consider what's going on in the other side of the family and offer those individuals a panel also? Yeah,
0: that is such a good point because just because say we identify something on their maternal side, if there's cancer family history on the other side, we may want to account for that. So I think that's good to look at the full picture and why family history can be a key role in that. That's a really right. good point.
1: Right, and then back to the, you don't know what you're gonna find. So we had a case that put fear and terror in all of our hearts where there was a family that looked like a Lee-Fraumeni syndrome family, had the classic tumors, breast sarcomas, and we found a TP53 mutation, no surprise. And you know, you, you would stop, right? And say, we, there's the answer. Um, except with additional testing, we discovered that this young woman also had a BRCA1 mutation. And now for her particular care, maybe that additional information was gonna have some minimal additional value, but for the family and figuring out who needed testing for what, major deal. If we were only testing for one pathogenic variant and you know no panel testing had been done, we would not have the awareness. And I just keep getting back to, we don't know what we're gonna find always. And most people I think who are caring about Tailoring their screening, um, having things that are going to target their specific risks, want to know about their cancer risks in general. They, they, they're interested in maintaining their health. And so doing something that's more comprehensive makes sense. But, um, you know, again, we need to be responsive to the preferences of our patients, uh, even when we you know, communicate that they have every right to decline testing altogether, or to, you know, prefer that we just dial it way down.
0: Yeah. Definitely. And, and Jill, you were one of the first genetic counselors in the U S to focus primarily on oncology. So what have you seen change? Like over the years, like what type of testing did we start with? Was it really like the genotyping and now we're sequencing of each gene? Can you speak a little more to that?
1: Yeah. So, because I'm that old, um, I worked with (laughs) seasoned, um, we're going with seasoned. (laughs) I wear it proudly. Uh, I've been, um, I'm about 30 years out from my graduate program. And so I worked uh, initially with a brilliant physician named Barbara Weber, uh, who came out of the University of Michigan, and she trained under Francis Collins, who was, you know, our former NIH director. And she was doing something called linkage. And when you do linkage, you try to compare DNA sequences in people who have cancer versus people who don't, and you look for commonalities in the people who have cancer that the people who don't have cancer, it's not there. And these are these were studies that were kind of gene hunting studies, but they could also sometimes characterize who in the family had likely risk. So Barb Weber, um, who was doing these linkage as a research study, had a very large breast and ovarian cancer family with very, very convincing linkage, um, meaning it really seemed like we could separate those who had whatever this was. And, and this is before BRCA1 was cloned. All right. So it's that old and One of her patients, she's she was an oncologist, uh, came in and said, "You know, I just want you to know, my sister is going to have prophylactic mastectomy this week based on the family history." And Barb, in her head, is thinking, "Mm, "They're not. She's not linked. She's not linked. It's not. She doesn't have it." Um, This was a research study. She went to the ethics committee, and they said, "You don't need to tell her. It's it's research. It's you know, there was no expectation of results back." The next day. Dr. Weber called the patient and said, come in, <laughs> we need to talk. And of course she told her, uh, and the patient did not have, uh, the surgery. And then after BRCA1 was cloned, of, you know, of course the family was tested and it was a BRCA1 family and this woman didn't have the gene mutation. And so that was kind of the birth of, uh, this field, uh, Barb Biesecker was involved with this family and some of our, um, you know, leaders uh, in this field. So it was very exciting to start out, you know, at the beginning and see how much we could do. Uh, Even pre uh, having a gene to point to, we could still advise families, you have a strong history. Uh, The tamoxifen prevention study to try to lower cancer risk was available even before BRCA1 and 2 were identified. Um, And so shortly after the identification of those genes, it was, you know, of course sequencing and then Myriad had the patent and it was all done there. It was very expensive, it it took a while. If insurance didn't cover it, it wouldn't get done because, you know, no one had an extra $4,000 laying around to cover testing. Um, And then as everyone knows, the gene patenting went away and more and more labs jumped into the game. The technologies have evolved. Uh, we able to look at much more information now than we ever were able to in the past. Um, and so we're able to do very comprehensive now next-gen sequencing, whereas before we were you know slogging through the first linkage and then the Sanger sequencing. So it just keeps getting better and better. And the things that we can do to help families also have continued to get better and better. We have so much more information, um, not just that we think this is going to help. Now we know this is going to help in many cases, like with our Lynch syndrome families and you know our BRC families and some other notable conditions as well. So it's been just you know, so exciting to see how we, we keep going and I don't see us slowing down. <laughs> just seems to continue to get more and more impactful.
0: And how exciting to be able to see in your career, how much this changed just in these years, um, of just, you know, even hints of things that we could figure out as you're talking about with the linkage and then, okay. We confirm that years later, probably in the nineties, once we had the BRCA testing available. Um, so it's just so interesting to see how fast things move and cost. Right. So you said back then when myriad had the patent, which, um, they lost the patent. What was that? 2013 something around there, I think. 12, 12, 13, or, yeah. 12 or 13. Yeah. Um, and just how, you know, testing was, you know, used to be 4,000. Now it's a couple hundred or, or you know, covered through insurance. Um, so yeah, just very interesting to see how it's changed. And when we look at it that way, it's like, okay, well, how's it going to change in the next five to 10 years? Like, it's just, it's remarkable when we look at it through yes. that way. Um, and you mentioned Lynch syndrome, which we haven't talked too much about, um, today. I know it's, it's estimated that one in 280 people in the general population have Lynch syndrome, which is way more than even I thought. And I have a master's in genetics and I, I didn't even realize it was quite that common. Um, how do we think we can improve access to genetic services, especially for folks that may not have a strong family history, but are still at risk of, developing cancer, especially, you know, for Lynch syndrome, I think a lot of people know of DRCA one and two, but Lynch syndrome, I feel like numbers wise should be increased in terms of what people are aware of. Anybody have anything to, you know, uh, speak to in terms of Lynch syndrome and, and the risks that we have there? Jesse, you want to jump in? Yeah, I
2: think just historically, breast cancer research has been um, funded very well. And I think that's true in um, genetics as well. When we think about what genes we talk about um, in society, my patients always have heard about the BRCA genes, or um, they've heard about celebrities who have the genes. And it's, it's just something I feel like breast cancer in general, people talk about way more often than um, colon cancer or other types of cancer. And so I I do think that in order to have people in the community learn more about things like Lynch syndrome, we have to talk about them more often. And we have to um, also use our resources to offer testing more often to patients in the community. Um, I know historically at our institution, we have had a lot of studies, a lot of um, grants that aim to integrate genetic testing into like our mobile mammogram units and getting out into the community to educate providers about genes related to breast cancer. But there hasn't always been the same push for that related to you know, integrating this into community colonoscopy clinics and things like that. Um, I do think I've heard more recently conversations about early onset colon cancer in um, the public with multiple celebrities being diagnosed with early onset colon cancer. And I, I hate that celebrities are who drive some of these medical conversations, but I do think it helps um, when people especially young people learn about these things before they're at the age where colonoscopies are starting um, I think it's important for for the communities to be talking about this so um, I, I don't have a set answer on how we do it but I think making sure that we're putting the same effort into talking about these, other types of cancer syndromes that just aren't talked about as much and, and putting our research time and effort into making sure we're, we're reaching out to communities about this just as much as we have in the past reached out about making sure we're getting BRCA testing then.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. And a lot of us, when we do interviews and, and anything, you know, in the media, it's like we go to those examples because we're like, oh, well, maybe the public knows of them, so that's good. But maybe reaching towards other examples too, so we're not just keep echoing the same BRCA.
1: Um, Joe, what do you have to say? So I, I agree with everything that uh, Jess said, and you know, in a word, like be, be like Heather Hample, Men, You know, mention it all the time, everywhere you go, and you know, as genetic counselors. One of our skill sets is obviously we're, we're good communicators. And we, when we present, we often present to ourselves. So we go to our genetics conferences or our cancer genetics conferences and we present, and that's very important obviously, but there's a, a lot of value in us sort of fanning out and circulating in non-genetic audiences. And so accepting or even trying to seek out ways to address the community. Uh, to work with your uh, uh, maybe nurse navigators at your institution and help the nurse navigators understand the value of uh, genetic services because they're the ones talking to the patients about helping them set up their appointments. And if they can even say just a few words about the value of this, that's going to help make the service more attractive. But, you know, and going to other meetings, primary care sorts of conferences, uh, places where everyone is not already in genetics and learning the finer points, but maybe doesn't know much about it at all. And I believe we really have the skill set to do this and we can, uh, you know, make a big impact as it's going to touch more and more types of providers and they're going to be, you know, forced to deal with this information in the chart in some manner for them to know that here's a... Fabulous group of professionals who can help. Yeah,
0: definitely. And I I think it's so important us to also not only communicate with fellow healthcare providers, but the public in general so that they are aware of it. And, you know, I'm a little biased as a podcaster, but I find that to be really effective because, you know, I'll go on other science healthcare podcasts. And, you know, they're like, oh, what is a genetic counselor? What do you do? And, you know, you just start talking about these things and cancer. Comes up all the time. I think more than anything else, and I'm not a cancer genetic counselor, but it's like, all right, let's let's talk about these basic topics. And you know, I think it's it's really important in that way. Um, and I want to thank everybody that's been, you know, popping off in the chat and submitting, you know, questions in our Q and A box. Keep them coming. Um, I still have a couple more questions before I get to that. Um, but in terms of looking at genetic ancestry. Um this can be a big component in terms of looking at what genetic conditions someone could be at higher risk for. Um so I think something that you know all of us talk about in terms of being genetic counselors is people that have Ashkenazi as Jewish ancestry and I'm sure you guys get this question all the time like I do, why is that important? Why do you need to know if I have that ancestry? How do you guys explain
1: that to patients? Yeah, so as, as a member of the tribe, I can answer that one. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think it, it's something that we we ask all the time because we see a higher frequency of certain things in you know, different gene pools, if you will, in different populations. And for us, it, it's like a routine sort of question, but I think we need to ask the question in a sensitive manner, and we need to tell patients, why are we asking this question? <laughs> because obviously, historically, it's been... Something that uh, has been used not for uh, to help, but you know against the community, and so you know I find that it, it's it's helpful to ask the question, but you know say and this is why it's important. Different communities have different rates of you know that we find certain things, and sometimes it can target the search. But it's also interesting to see again looking toward the future how a lot of our ancestry-based testing is kind of falling away to a more universal approach. Um, You know it used to be even in the prenatal environment you would really focus your carrier testing screen know, the Jewish screen or there was the you know your Mediterranean ancestry or or whatever and and it's really becoming more universal. In this country um, you know happily so many of us have mixed ancestry uh, and hybrid vigor, you know, we we have lots of different uh, lines of ancestry that we're working with. And and you just, you don't always know what your ancestry is. Uh, and so, for example, I worked with a family, um, a Black family from Philadelphia, who had a BRCA founder mutation, and we discovered there was an ancestor named Abraham. So there you go. <laughs> so while, you know, it is, it is something that I, I think in some circumstances, cert- Circumstances, it may be useful to allow someone to meet guidelines for insurance coverage. For example, it may be helpful in that regard. Or if someone is on the fence, you know, it can be an additional piece of information. You know, based on your ancestry, uh, you're someone who might have a even higher likelihood of testing positive. Uh, and there's an increasing push in the Ashkenazi Jewish community to offer testing to everyone, to everyone. Um, I worked with a woman who I met at the time of her stage four ovarian cancer diagnosis who had enough family history that she should have been offered testing and she wasn't. And this is an easy thing to do. And had she known about this test, she would have had it and it would have saved her life because she would have taken evasive measures. She never had that option. And so waiting until there's cancer in the family in communities where there really is a very high rate of finding mutations. And in the Ashkenazi community, it's one in 40. One in 40 people, it doesn't matter what your history is, what your family history of cancer is, one in 40 people will have one of these high penetrance mutations. And my personal uh, belief is it should be offered to everyone uh, in the Ashkenazi community because there are invasive measures, there are things you can do that can be life saving.
0: Yeah, and I, and I want to point out that Chelsea has a good point um, in the chat here, that um, they're listening live, um, that there is a lot of debate within the genetic counseling community about whether to ask about ancestry, aside from Askenazi Jewish ancestry, and many GCs of color staunchly against it, so I just wanted to, you know, put that out there, um, and that, you know, even Jill, you mentioned in the prenatal realm that I'm documenting what their ancestry is, but that doesn't affect what testing I'm ordering. It's more that I'm provide, providing that information to the lab because they're asking for it. Um, so unless someone has Ashkenazi Jewish background, I, you know, it, it doesn't really change anything. And even if they do, I'm, if they want to do, you know, I'm talking about carrier screening more, if they want to do that, we're still
3: ordering it. Um, Emily, did you have something to add? Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually, now that I read Kelsey's comments, it's echoing a lot of what she was saying in the chat, but we've just had a lot of conversations about even asking about ancestry among our group lately. Um, certainly, I see the benefit for asking about Ashkenazi Jewish background because it can sometimes help with insurance coverage which we absolutely want people to have if they can get it in any way shape or form so I think that's a bit of an exception um, but beyond that there's not a lot of times that it really affects what I'm going to order for someone or whether or not I can get coverage for someone. Um, we feel sometimes a little bit or I sometimes feel a little bit cornered into asking it still because unfortunately a lot of the Breast cancer risk assessment models that we run for patients collect it, um, so that's kind of been part of our hangup on completely eliminating it. However, a lot of those models aren't validated in all backgrounds, so it brings into that that question has come up recently too, where we're really taking a hard look at those things of like, when do we need to ask this? If we when we don't need to ask it, maybe we should not ask it. Um, And then also kind of trying to do a better job of pointing out some of those things where um, risk models we haven't really touched on, but these are something that, you know, genetic counselors will often run as part of our risk assessment for patients. They're kind of like little cancer risk calculators that aren't necessarily based on just genetics. They can take into account other risk factors um, for breast cancer as well. Um, and, and a person's ancestry or ethnicity is one of the questions that those some, sometimes ask about. Um, so yeah, we've we've been having a lot of these discussions. It's, um, I think, a really important question. Kelsey also mentioned a lot of times self-reported ancestry is inaccurate. So like, you know, what is it really adding, um, so a really good questions that I think we'll continue to discuss, and I'm glad that we're discussing more and trying to figure out, you know, kind of how to address as a, as a profession.
0: Yeah. And, and a piece of that is labs are starting to offer genetic ancestry testing as part of the test. So we could possibly in the future, get away from the self-reported ancestry, which as Kelsey and and Emily is pointing out is not always accurate. Um, you know, we've learned this of someone does 23 and they're like, oh, I'm not as Irish as I thought or whatever it is. Right. Um, so I think looking at that, maybe being the replacement for that. So we start looking at, okay, what is your genetic ancestor running that test to go with the testing? Because sometimes it can help influence in terms of, okay, someone's risk level, because we see with genetic testing, our database is much larger for people of European descent than it is for non-European descent. Um, do you guys see this in terms of results getting back of residual risk of missing, uh, a genetic mutation or with VUS's variants of uncertain significance, Jill, you're nodding. Yeah. So I
1: I was just going to add about, you know, why, why just not, why, you know, should we just stop asking about ancestry altogether? And I think one place it also comes up that's helpful is, is the laboratory interpretation. And I, you know, I'm intrigued by the idea of substituting that with just, you know, ancestry markers, because, As we know, variant frequencies are different depending on your genetic ancestry. And sometimes we we all slog through variants of uncertain significance. It is a big part of where our expertise is called into play. And looking at variant frequencies can be, not necessarily the answer, but it is a clue that we use to interpret the significance of a variant. So if it's a variant that's much more common, in the population of the person in whom we're doing testing, that's one clue that maybe this is just a common, um, you know, polymorphism and it's not pathogenic, it's not uh, disease-causing. But it, it you know, I, I think that in general, the the information that we have in our genetic databases needs to be more diverse. It needs to be. It must be. It has to be equitable. It has to serve you know, the broader community than, you know, the original uh, data sets largely based on uh, European populations. And so I completely support that this is something that must be worked on and must be a priority.
0: Yeah, 100% agree. And I think the All of Us project in the US um, is really contributing towards this um, is one of, you know, many projects that are happening just so that we do have a database that better reflects, The human race and all all the diversity that we have. Um, In terms of VUSs, if someone um, gets a VUS and the variant of uncertain significance, where we say, "All right, there's this genetic change. We don't know if this means it makes the gene not work. You have an elevated risk for cancer, or it's just benign uh, polygenic. You know, um, uh, you know a PM there." So in that case where someone has a VUS, how often should they check back with their healthcare provider to see has it been updated? Is six months still the recommendation, or what what are you guys telling patients now? Go ahead, Jesse.
2: Yeah, I typically tell patients, well, if I'm ordering the testing, we have policies in place for releasing updates to families, but not all places, um, especially in the communities, um, if, a provider isn't seeing that patient regularly, they don't always get updates on it. So I usually recommend people reach out every year um, to either their provider or if I'm seeing the patient and it's been ordered by a provider, we'll sometimes have them add my name to their account if the patient is okay with that. Um, Just because at my institution, even if somebody leaves, we have policies in place for who gets updated with results. <clears throat> but if it, if it were me, excuse me, <clears throat> if it were me, I'd be checking in every year just okay. to, to see. But there's some patients who have had VUSs for eight years who have not had any updates. Um, so every every year, but um, I just encourage them to, to take action for themselves if if it's a healthcare provider that they don't know their policies on VUS updates, because we we can't watch every provider to make sure they're actually being contacted. But labs labs do update the ordering provider on those uncertainties and what they do with that from there is each provider's own policy.
0: Right, yeah, so mark on your birthday or something, check back in with your provider, something on a, on a yearly basis. Um, in terms of looking at RNA testing. This is a question we had previously submitted. Um, Is analyzing RNA with DNA helpful? Like, what is this process? Are labs always doing this, sometimes doing this? How have you guys, um, have you ordered this? Like, what's your experience with the
1: RNA analysis? Yeah, you know, I think it's another enhancement in the evolution of genetic testing. We know it enhances sensitivity over uh, just doing DNA and it can be particularly helpful with certain types of gene alterations, especially splice alterations. Um, There are ways now increasingly to include the RNA option in the genetic testing that you order uh, one of the caveats is we need a blood sample to do the RNA and saliva testing is a very popular way to get the testing done, especially in times of COVID, you know, you can just send a saliva kit, someone doesn't have to come to the medical center. Um, but uh, the RNA, you know, is, is clearly an enhancement, it, you know, it's not going to double the sensitivity rate, but it's going to notch it up a bit. and so. Why not? <laughs> you know is I guess the, the feeling. And sometimes we, we try to balance the getting the person into the institution to get the blood work done so we can include that as part of the test versus, you know, are they someone in a really remote location where, well, that would be nice, but it's just not practical. And so it's not like you know, the saliva test is a bad test. It's still going to pick up the majority of you know what's findable.
0: Yeah, definitely. Saliva is game changer. I think it just increases accessibility so much more. Um, another question we had was someone did BRCA 1 and 2 testing back in um, the patent days. Um, and now, obviously, we've been talking about these gene panels. Should people that have had BRCA testing that were negative, should they repeat testing now with a gene panel? Um, does insurance cover this? Will the lab cover it? Like, you know, Myriad had the, the patent. So, um, Emily, can you speak to this?
3: Yeah, so uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> if someone has previously had negative BRCA1 and 2 testing and that's all that's tested, there is definitely additional testing that is recommended for them now. Um, it's not so much that they need to get those two genes that were already tested rechecked. Um, sometimes they might if their first testing wasn't comprehensive for those. But typically what we're really talking about is we know of more genes now. So in these past 10, 15 years, there've been multiple other genes identified that can impact risk for breast cancer, ovarian cancer, all the cancers that go in the BRCA spectrum. And so if somebody walks into a clinic today, they should be absolutely getting a test that includes you know, at least like 12 or 15 genes that connect to that. Often it might be more than that. Um, And these, this recommendation is, you know, it's not just mine, it's reflected in those SCCN guidelines and so um, insurance coverage is typically there for that, even if a person's already had BRCA 1 and 2, they can come back and have coverage for the, those other genes now, most of the time is, is what we expect to see. Um, and then there are, you mentioned labs. There are some labs that have sort of access programs for this, where um, if an insurer for whatever reason didn't cover it, which I think would be more unusual, um, they may have some sort of update program where a patient could be eligible for them to help them have access to it. So yeah, definitely people who've had genetic testing 15 years ago, and it was normal, probably need to come back in. Um, I would say, you know, really should consider coming back to get updated. And that's not something, you know, people often ask me, when do I need to get retested for this? And so I always try to clarify, like, it's not that you need to be retested for any of the genes you've been tested for before, your genetics are the same your whole life. We don't need to recheck those ones. But We learn more over time and we learn that there are other genes that can affect a person's risk that just weren't available back then in 2005 or 2006 or whenever. So it's more that our knowledge evolves and we know there's stuff we should be looking for that we just didn't know about before.
0: Yeah, great way of explaining that. Very, very clear and everything. Um, Isabella has a question. Do you explain the RNA analysis to patients? If so, what information do you provide? Is it something that you dive into with patients or it's more background information for you guys to interpret the
1: test? You know, for us, I think the answer, like a lot of genetic counseling is it depends, <laughs> you know, it, that's it, always depends, our answer, right? <laughs> right. It depends. I mean, and one of the joys of being a genetic counselor is that our interactions are so different depending on who we're meeting with, how much do they want to know about this? Do they care about the details? they may not, they just may want to know that this is going to make their test a little more accurate. And and now please don't, you know, provide any more detail because I'm not listening. (laughs) And then of course we, we, you know, and those of us at academic medical centers are constantly seeing our own. We're seeing people who are themselves in the profession. They, they may be, you know, healthcare providers themselves. They may be, you know, Molecular geneticists, sometimes we're seeing. So I think you know it, it's, it goes back to a basic tenet of genetic counseling. You have to work with the person in front of you, and you have to be able to provide what type of information they want that is meeting their informational needs, but it doesn't need to be, you know, a standard lecture component where everyone has to hear the same spiel um, you're there to provide, you know, the information they need to make the decision about what they want to do and understand the significance of the findings, but the amount of detail is going to vary so much, you know, from one person to another. And again, that's part of the joy of what we do when we get to know the people, you know, who are with us and how to best accommodate and serve them. Yeah. Yeah, definitely
0: what I love about being a genetic counselor, everything's different and you're tailoring it to each patient and everything. I think that's one of the joys of our our job. Um, But I think we're just out of time now. We've got a couple of minutes to wrap up here. Um, So thank you everybody for tuning in. You'll see a feedback link in your browser when this webinar ends, as well as emailed to you. We'd really appreciate if you could take a minute to offer feedback so we can work to improve our upcoming installments of the Phenotip Speaker Series. The email will also include a link to the PhenoTips Speaker Series page, where you can sign up to really receive alerts on upcoming sessions. If you want to just directly go there, you can go to PhenoTips.com, hit the Resources tab, and then the Speaker Series is going to pop up on that drop-down menu, and all of our installments are on there. It's also available as a podcast, so you can search uh, the PhenoTips Speaker Series in your podcast player. And listen to this as you do other things um, and when we're not live, um, but stay tuned for our next webinar taking place tomorrow. It's going to be tomorrow. We're going to be talking about improving diagnostic yield in pediatric genetics. So switching the script a little bit, focusing on the pediatric side, uh, but you need to be registered like you registered today. If you are listening to this live um, so definitely register if you haven't already, cause it's going to be a great conversation. Um, but really I want to thank each of you for coming on here and sharing so much expertise. You answered almost all of my questions. <laughs> I feel like I never quite get everything done in the time we have, but, uh, that's always good. Leave, leave a little for next time. Um, but thank you, Emily, Jill, and Jesse for joining us, sharing all of your expertise, Uh, shout out to Kelsey in the chat and the Q and a answering a lot of questions there that we didn't have time for. So thank you so much. Anybody want to, well, we have right now, you can see our social media um, on here if you want to follow us and connect with us there. Um, Any closing thoughts as we say farewell to everybody?
2: Thanks for having us on everybody and, and letting us talk. Um, I, I personally love talking about genetics all day, every day. So, um, thanks <laughs> Same. <for your> invite.
0: <laughs> yeah, we got a good crowd here. We're all all pretty energetic about, uh, genetics and, and cancer and, um, yeah, really appreciate everybody. Um, shout out Megha in the chat here. Um, for tuning in, looking forward to connecting with everybody tomorrow for our next installment. You don't have to wait a month this time it's tomorrow. Uh, so I will see you guys there. And thank you again, Emily, Jesse, and Jill for joining us and sharing all of your wisdom that you have to offer. I learned a lot today. Um, so really appreciate it.
3: Thanks, Kara.
0: All right. Bye everybody. See you tomorrow.